Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 28, Security Blankets where we will be looking at chapter 60 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of a false sense of security. If you're new here, welcome. A little bit of an explanation of our show. Each week, we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply it to our real lives. We will then take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week, after which we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. A word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text and published opinions of the author as you read them, we're not going to stand by for abuse. Right now we're dealing with a situation where a high-profile fantasy author has come out with numerous transphobic opinion pieces, and we vehemently disagree with those positions, and it is not abuse to name an abuser. So let's be clear there. But it is also perfectly fine to disagree with and condemn the hurtful and abusive words and behaviors from a person that wrote a story that you like. We understand that for some, that series of books is so very, very tied to their identity and they can divorce themselves from the words of the author. And that's perfectly fine. We're not going to be upset with you for finding meaning in something you found meaning in two years ago before you knew that the author was not supportive of the trans community, let's say. It is also perfectly fine to throw your hands up and donate those books and get all of the merchandise that now causes you pain out of your life. What we mean by not abusing the author in terms of Patrick Rothfuss. All you really need to do is go to the Goodreads page for Doors of Stone and read that for like two seconds and that's what we mean. Don't just hound the author for a book that you think you deserve. That's all. We just ask that you follow Bill and Ted's maxim to be excellent to each other. I would suggest just be civil. I say be excellent because it's fun. Fair enough. <laughs> Let's get on with it. <laughs> All right. So with that out of the way, it's my turn to do the recap this week. And uh, boy, howdy, there was a lot. I know. It's a little tiny section. And somehow a lot of things happen. I wonder what that's like. <laughs> I hope I'm not going to be eating cherries as a result of this. Well, I eat raspberries as a result of something very similar. So... All right. I'm sure you would like me to reset my clock before I actually start recording how long you take to do this. Please. Okay. Well, now I do have a timer ready. 
All right. In three, two, one, go. In a hungover state, Quoth draws his slot to set his interview date where he gets a late lot. With Ambrose Quoth dickers mostly for fun, to make his date quicker, and also to say he won, Quoth passes his test and then goes to the Aeolian, which is probably for the best, because he needs his instrument. Quoth meets up with Den and arranges a dinner, so as to win a patron, though the pickings are thinner. Quoth pays Davy a visit, to pay off his mark, and gently inquisit about the fate of those who've narked. They arrange to trade favors, and look at some books of an academic flavor, which is a good look. Kilvin invites Quoth back to work in the fishery, for he's missed the lad's knack for runes and strange wishery. 34.45 seconds. Whew! That was a lot! I still think I missed some things. I'm pretty sure you <laughs> did, but we're going to get into it. <laughs> no cherries for me. Dang it. Dang it, dang it, dang it, dang it. <laughs> we have to come up with some other fun things to put up on our YouTube channel. If our audience has any suggestions, we'd love to hear them. Whether that be us eating super hot ramen or... We already did that. We're just looking for fun things. If you want us to do an unboxing, if you want to suggest any weird musical instruments that we can maybe find off of Wish. Or maybe doing a let's play through a silly game. But we're up for doing fun things. Stanley Parable sounds like a good one. The demo for Stanley Parable sounds like a good one. That actually would be a lot of fun to do. <laughs> we might do that. But in order for that to happen, some of you nice, wonderful, amazing listeners are going to have to tell us if you would like that. Also, as a pretty, pretty, pretty please, I would love it if you subscribe to that YouTube channel. You just have to look for Tales from the Waystone on YouTube for now because... YouTube doesn't let you choose your own URL until you have 100 subscribers, and we have 42. And while that number is fantastic, don't get me wrong, 100 would be better. We'll try to make more things for it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's get into this short chapter with a ton of stuff in it. Yeah, I believe dense would be the right word. It also describes Quoth in this, but... So, one of the things that we noticed as we were reading this is that Quoth leans on a number of security blankets here to give him the confidence to operate with impunity. There's a lot of things that, that are in play here. I mean, first of all, his heavier purse is basically a weighted security blanket right there. Yeah, I would agree with that. There is something interesting that comes with having a full purse or a full bank account Especially if you have just come from having absolutely nothing. There's a temptation to spend it all on things that you have been denying yourself. New clothes, new shoes, things that you knew that you needed but you could never get. A haircut, nice soap, nice tea. I remember looking at a canister of tea when I had maybe $40 in the bank, and the tea was $11. And going, who in their right mind would pay $11 for this? I have since moved a little bit away from having only $40 in the bank, and there is some of that tea in my little stash of tea down in our pantry right now. Apparently I, in my right mind, 
would buy $11 worth of tea. So there is a perspective shift. He even says when debating whether or not to trade his slot that he would have previously jumped at the possibility of making five jots from a trade. And now he has the luxury of time because of the money that he earned at the Aeolian the night before. And he can afford to wait. And he can afford to negotiate too. And afford to walk away from it. Yeah, in any negotiation, one of the most powerful bits of leverage that someone has is the ability to say, I don't need this. Let's rewind a little bit and talk about the beginning, beginning of the chapter. Apparently, Mr. 15-year-old Quoth is sporting his first hangover, which, I mean, world's tiniest violin. <laughs> but in some ways, I think that he's a little bit right about his opinion of how much time did I really need to study? I can't go and look at any of the books. Meh. But did he take any notes? And apparently, though, with his eidetic memory, that hasn't really been a necessity. Yeah, except this time he still wound up with a six-talent tuition. This whole system, whole system, is real screwed up. I mean, it's all arbitrary. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about a lot as we've been looking at the way our current justice system works and things, particularly like traffic enforcement, come into play. One of the reasons people hate traffic cameras is that there's no discretion. However, right now, discretion, as it's played out, typically really involves the prejudice of police officers granting grace to people who are white without granting the same courtesy, the same discretion to people of color. Which really seems like a way to discriminate against people with less means. Or that are perceived to have less means. I don't know if they base it off of what car, make and model, has run the light, what color the car is. There is anecdotal evidence that red cars get pulled over more often. There is anecdotal evidence that crappier cars get pulled over more often. Sometimes fighting against a traffic ticket costs you more in the long run than just paying it. And people who have less means tend to have less ability to take time off to fight the traffic ticket and will just pay it. And it could be a strategy, it could be a prejudice, it could be a thing that people assigning these traffic tickets might not even realize is a bias. Yeah, part of it is that while everyone likes grace, in a system where grace is unequally distributed, that ends up becoming a form of prejudice. To continue on, we find out from Sim, who is rather giddy, that Ambrose and his buddies have drawn slots for this very afternoon, which means that they will have no time to study and very likely have a very much higher tuition, which really shouldn't bother Ambrose all that much Except I think he does take pride in his schoolwork. Yeah, and I think he also takes pride in being able to get a good score. He seems like the sort of person who's pathologically competitive. Flip side of Quoth's coin. Yeah, they deserve each other. I think there's that element there where 
He wants to make sure he's doing everything to get the lowest possible tuition he can because that's a mark of excellence in his favor. He thinks he's entitled to it, in fact. He thinks he's entitled to everything, so... But then again, so does Kvothe. And I don't want to sound like I'm shirting on Kvothe all the time, but... Well, in this case, they are still Tom and Jerry. Because Kvothe really does kind of seek Ambrose out on this. Uh, I think he just takes advantage of the circumstance that Ambrose comes over and goes, Oh, it's you. Fine. And he doesn't have so much pride that he won't pay for the slot. And then it plays out kind of like a Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny cartoon. A little bit of duck season, rabbit season. Yes. <laughs> and in this case, Kvothe fancies himself to be Bugs. I'd say generally speaking, that would be accurate. He's the one who manages to keep his cool a little bit more and ends up getting his win mostly by being willing to take a few hits here and there. Although really the win is more just making Ambrose look silly like he doesn't come off looking any worse because he already knows he's of low class. Oh, I think he comes off looking worse, if you think about it. It makes him a less likable person. It makes him a less likable person from a class-blind perspective. But considering that many of the people in the school are already looking at him poorly because he is of lower birth, I don't know that he's necessarily changed their opinions. Okay, fair enough. He's not really giving Ambrose a comeuppance. He's just being a jerk. It is a bit of needless antagonism. And I always wonder how much of Ambrose's actual offense does he really take umbrage at? Because he doesn't seem to remember the way Ambrose was treating Fella. He doesn't really seem to even really tie it back to the prank that Ambrose pulled that got him banned from the archives. It's taking on a life of its own. At this point, I think he just hates Ambrose because he doesn't know what to do if he didn't. And I think that is also a sort of identity security blanket on his part. He feels better if he's just got this animosity with this rich jerk. I'm trying to think of something that made me laugh because it was slightly inappropriate. And I don't want to come across like I'm a total killjoy on everything that is kind of twistedly possibly even anti-feminist joking because I do like dirty jokes and there's some things that are double entendre in this that kind of made me snort a little bit yesterday when I read it don't remember what they are and I hopefully highlighted them is it the bit about the STI with a gross discharge no no that part didn't make me laugh mm. no there was something a little more clever We'll probably get to it. Hopefully I didn't already pass it. So here we go. After Ambrose just pretty much says, I hope you choke on that tile. Go away. Sim looks at Kvothe and just goes, you know, that really wasn't your best work. As though it's a mark of pride amongst Sim and Will also that Kvothe can tie verbal knots around Ambrose. In this one, they kind of both came out looking like jerks. And I think ultimately when you get into pissing contests, at the end of the day, no one wins. Because no matter how good you are at pissing far and pissing long, 
you still got urine down your leg. Oh my gosh. I'm not wrong. I'm saying you are. <laughs> All right. So we go along after that, and Quoth points out that in order to save his friendship and not take offense at what Will has said regarding that STI, he's just going to pretend that the words used to name it translate directly to the disease's name and not to the edema drip, which, nope, not going to touch that one. Nope, nope, I'm done. And it does point to how sometimes we have names for things in our society that we don't always think about their true etymology of and how hurtful it can be, even when said casually and without any malice. Yeah, there are a few things, having grown up, the kid of someone from the South that um, I will never repeat. Agreed. But it is important to think about how our language exists and some of the things that we may use casually could in fact be quite harmful to people. So it's worth researching and if someone points it out, take it in stride and try and do better. Absolutely. Don't be defensive. Take it as a learning opportunity and actually learn. If you find out all of a sudden that a phrase that you've been using is harmful to others, don't say it again. Or do your best not to say it again. So as we continue on, I mean, that was just like, what, two and a half pages? Right. Ah. There's a lot. It, this is a dense chapter. Yeah. Next little section of this chapter, Quoth goes back to Emre to retrieve his loot. And when he starts talking to Diok. Diok says, we've got your lady inside. And I'm going to skip a little bit just so that I can actually tell what made me laugh. Because I do enjoy double entendre. I'd go grab her before Stanchion gets overly familiar and starts practicing his fingering. hey It takes both a little while, I think understandably so, <laughs> to understand that Diak is referring to the loot and not to a person. Quoth is a dense idiot sometimes, but I can't say that I would have taken that any other way either. Well, and I think Diak also enjoys tweaking at Quoth a little bit. Yeah, I think he likes making Quoth's face turn red. When I was a lot younger, although I have always liked the dirty jokes and always liked the double entendre and all of that stuff, it was very, very, very easy to embarrass the crap out of me and make my face turn beet red. I don't know that it's as easy anymore, but it's still probably pretty easy. And I had friends that found it very, very entertaining and would do it on purpose. I didn't like it, and so I can totally sympathize with both. I kind of get the sense that Diok kind of plays the older brother role in many ways. Like, he's a little more world-wise and enjoys kind of playing with Quoth's immaturity while still at the same time being fundamentally decent to him. So, the part that I skipped over was immediately after We've Got Your Lady Inside, Quoth assumes they're talking about Denna. And then back to our lens from the last episode, 
but Savoy's my friend. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why does he immediately think that she is his? And then he has to tell himself, no, wait, she's with Savoy. <laughs> the fact that he immediately makes this possessive leap and then has to talk himself down from it by assigning the possession to another man. It's kind of gross. Yeah. There are some traits of Quoth I do not like. And I think also, in many ways, Quoth is still a product of his society. Also, he's very young. Speaking of Denna, no Denna to be found. But there is Den, a.k.a. Count Threp. I really enjoyed this little interaction, and Threp remains one of the characters that I do enjoy. And one of the things that I noticed here is etiquette, which is something that Quoth falls back on immediately when they first start interacting, addressing him as my lord, etc. That's a kind of security blanket as well. It's a societal security blanket that allows people of different classes to interact with one another. And it's one that really only people of high birth have the luxury of being able to discard. So it is acceptable societally for Threp, or Den, to engage informally. Also to say piss on etiquette. Exactly. He can say that. He can say, I'm going to discard the constraints of etiquette and address you casually and ask that you do the same of me. Quoth does not have that same luxury within that society. And as generally good-natured and good-humored as Threp is, he still has a lot of privilege and luxury that is there only by virtue of his birth and by extension his wealth. As the conversation goes on, we get a little bit more of the superstition regarding the university as seen by the people who live in Imre. It's got this shroud of mystery and the immediate assumption is, wait, you're a warlock? So my little favorite bit is Quoth picks as his innocent subjects grammar and mathematics, which, as I was thinking about it, in the real world, some of the most dangerous things have been the result of grammar and mathematics. Grammar has given us all kinds of manifestos and declarations that have inflamed movements and caused cataclysmic shifts in the way the world works. And they've also encoded certain formal methods of oppression on other people. That's pretty damn dangerous. And then mathematics, I just can't help but thinking about the quote from Mass Effect where they're talking about how Isaac Newton is the most dangerous son of a bench in the galaxy because of the laws of motion. The atom bomb is the result of mathematics. It's some dangerous stuff there. Both has picked the two most dangerous subjects as his innocuous ones. To remind everybody about his conversation with Elodin, so ciphering and grammar make people crazy? So he picked something similar. He picked grammar in that. And then Elodin goes, trigonometry and diagrammed logic don't do this. So even Elodin agrees that grammar and mathematics are safe. <laughs> Although I would still argue that they're not, but they seem like they should be. Yeah, that was just something that tickled my funny bone a little bit there. We get into a conversation about how 
Quoth does not actually have a patron, which is probably for the best, because I doubt that his patron would be very happy about him studying at the university. On top of that, Threat starts going into this analogy of how musicians with a patron are like wives with a husband, implying that polyamory is perfectly fine and acceptable in this society, which may only be true for richer people, but still, no one batted an eye at the idea, which is great because I think that it's really stupid to think that you can only love one person ever, but I digress. I don't like the characterization though of how one wife you're happy, two and you're tired. <laughs> I don't know. So it kind of reminds me of when I was in college during one of the first days there, they had sort of a formal dinner where people were randomly paired up with people of the opposite gender to be dates. But because of the ratios at our school, um, yeah, it was one guy to three girls. Oh my goodness. And one of the things that I quickly discovered is that when you start getting into the formality of it all, that gets to be kind of hectic. And all of the expectations that are placed upon you. So, you know, having to make sure that you are pulling out the chairs for three different people, and then you're having to hold the door for three people, and you're having to do all of these things. And then at the same time, when there's a conversation going on, you have to make sure that you're giving equal weight to every person there. And it's very difficult because of all of these things that are placed on you. And especially, of course, since none of us actually chose any of who our dining companions were. That seems very awkward. It was. It was. I mean, at least if you've picked your partners, there's a chance that you'll have an engaging conversation that isn't just... Uh, uh... Yeah. But to continue the quote, three, and they'll hate each other. Did they hate each other? Not really. Oh, good. I think that the, and they'll hate each other, is kind of derisive toward the people, the women that you are referring to. Because chances are, in a relationship like that, if you're being respectful and honest and open with everybody, they'll actually like each other a lot. And then four, and they'll hate you. I can understand if it comes down to thinking that love is like pie, but it's not pie. If one person is getting more favor, though, or is perceived to be getting more favor, I can see how that might be a problem. Well, I can understand it more in terms of the patronage part, the musicians and their patron, because in this case, their ability to live and live well is very dependent on their patron, and their patron's attention kind of is pie their money, their ability to choose gigs and places to perform. So in some ways I get it like that. I just don't agree with it in terms of love. I would agree with that, yes. I think it's also fair that in a uh, fairly aristocratic setting where marriages are business arrangements as opposed to love arrangements, that could easily turn into a thing. The little bit of, so I'm your mistress, then, kind of made me laugh. And then the analogy falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> However, 
At this point, it seems like Threp is providing a bit of a security blanket for Kvothe. Hey, I might not have room to be your patron, but I can help you find one. Which, that is a good thing for him to do. And as we all know, by the end of the next couple of chapters, probably, all that just kind of dissolves away. Which does sometimes happen with certain types of security blankets, especially the false one. We have a little bit of discussion back and forth trying to describe Denna to Diok and to Threp and all of the innuendo of, oh, so you're looking for a girl, are you? Which I think is kind of gross, but I think is also the older three tweaking both. I think that they're doing this on purpose not to degrade the woman in this situation, Denna, or Diane, but rather just to mess with Kvothe, which is a pastime that I totally approve of, so have at it, guys. Just don't act like that towards actual people, please. By the end of the conversation, Diok admits that he does know who Denna is, has no idea how to find her, and says, be careful, boy, that one will steal your heart. Men fall for her like wheat before a sickle blade. Which implies, as I have stated before, that she has got to be older than Kvothe. Because anything younger than Kvothe? Ew. Ew, 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 pedophile, ew. No. No, 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 this is not Game of Thrones. Ew. Ews are noted and co-signed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So anyway, as Kvothe comes back to reality... He finds himself back on Davy's porch, and she somehow is able to intuit that he's there without him knocking, which is a little weird, but... She even says, what are you lurking for? Gentleman knock. And so he's, at this point now, having to figure out how he's going to handle his finances moving forward. Does he pay off his entire loan and then find himself penniless? Or does he just pay off the interest and keep the loan going? Davy is in favor of the latter. I wonder why. She doesn't want to kill the golden goose. Fair enough. But also she seems to like Kvothe's company for some reason. My guess is probably because he's an interesting person to talk to. He is charming. I think she also finds it useful to know someone with his talents. Even though she herself has those talents. She also does genuinely enjoy his lute playing. This is also something that I think will become a theme for Quoth. Specifically, his music is what he can use to differentiate himself from his fellow students. This is what he uses to help get himself a room to rent without actually having to pay for it in coin. You know, he's able to use these talents that bring people joy to get some favors in the world. And there's value in that. You know, I think... It's oftentimes all too easy to undervalue things that are seen as frivolous, but they oftentimes are what make life worth living. We see that the money also is yet more of a security blanket. The fact that he has this loan that he can pay off some of, the interest, but that he still has money available. It gives him a sense of security. It gives him a sense that He's not just going to be screwed and having to focus all of his attention on how much money is in his pocket. Which is a real thing. Knowing that you have enough 
to help you through a rainy day is important. Especially in our country, in the United States, there's an alarming statistic that most families are $400 away from being homeless. Like, they can't afford any sort of catastrophe, medical bills, an unexpected car trouble, anything, a leaky pipe in their house. There is something to be said about having a security blanket, even if it's in the form of like a credit card or the ability to even get a loan. It feels better to have, even if it's a line of credit that is a crushing debt on top of you, it feels like an emergency fund. Having that emergency fund gives a sense of security that you wouldn't otherwise have. And I'd say, unlike some of the other security blankets we've been discussing, isn't really a false sense of security. It's something that you pay for, certainly, but it does give you a little more latitude to make some long-term plans for a lot of people. It could also be a crushing weight for some people, too. Having outstanding debts, like good debts, can be okay because if you know that you can pay them and you know that you are working towards the goal of that end, can feel good and feel like an accomplishment, like owning a house or owning a car. But having revolving debt, if it is your emergency fund, can also feel very insecure and like the rug is going to be pulled out from underneath you at any moment, which can be a constant source of anxiety and worry. But right now, Kvothe is ignoring that part of it. And honestly, given his history, I am not surprised, and I can't really judge him for that. To continue on with the story, Kvothe notes that Davy has quite a number of books in her possession, and he mentions it, and Davy just responds with, I'd think you'd have your fill of books in the archives. To which... Quoth explains that he was banned, and Davy actually says something that I think is quite wise. I'd heard, but you never know which rumors are true. I mean, that's definitely true in this day and age. You'll hear rumors about all kinds of things. Gonna say it. I am gonna say it. Capitol Hill in Seattle. There are a lot of rumors. Talk to someone who's actually been there. And national news is doing its best to vilify the people who have taken over a couple of blocks of Capitol Hill in Seattle, which is very tiny, tiny section of that city. And they are peaceful and they are helping the homeless. They are feeding people. They are taking donations. They are not extorting anyone. They are not armed. They're hippies. They're making art all over every surface. They have a purpose, and their purpose is to try to fix a broken system, but they're not violent in the least. And it's not to say that they're all monolithic, that they agree on all the same things. In fact, that's not the case. They have different priorities, but they're also all committed to working together to build a social contract that takes care of everybody. And they're having conversations and having opportunities to learn from one another that they wouldn't otherwise have, you know, like adults. Now that we've gotten into that one again, again, 
This was recorded in June of 2020. And then, of course, we have another callback to the mating habits of the common Dracus. Chronicler makes yet another cameo. I wonder what the fan moit... moit... fan... moite? What... what is... I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna do my best to not butcher the crap out of this, except I already did. Fan moite? Moit? Not sure. So there's a latest edition. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. And there are engravings and a section on the fan moite. I want more information about this because it sounds a little like the Fey world. And it makes me kind of wonder because there isn't a clear timeline of Chronicler as a person. If he's gone in and out of the Fey world. Or maybe if Quoth has gone in and out of the Fey world at different points in time. Otherwise, it's just a context-free proper noun. It just makes you more curious, and I want payoff. Will Doors of Stone finally give us the Fey and Moyete we've been craving? Probably not. <laughs> As Quoth goes back to the university, he spends the whole time wondering if Davy was flirting with him or just being nice. And I know I've told you this before, but quite honestly, it is almost impossible to distinguish between being nice and being flirtatious from the inside of the conversation or from outside of it. Frankly, it could be both. It could be neither. It could be a business transaction and Davy just has good customer service. Many people think that uh, service people like waiters or baristas or what have you are giving them a flirtatious, friendly treatment when really they're just being treated courteously. Yeah, maybe. Some people, though, in customer service positions understand that to be tipped better, being a little flirtatious doesn't hurt. And it's also key to point out that flirtatious is not necessarily an invite for sexual interaction. Or romantic interaction. Again, with us <laughs> kind of going into those sections, but... Let's go ahead and keep moving. So then Quoth has his long-awaited reunion with Kilvin. And as a reminder, he's spent the past three span not being able to work in the fishery. And this has clearly been weighing on Quoth. So he goes and figures he needs to settle his debts with Kilvin for the materials that he's used. And of course, Kilvin is able to give him the exact dollar amount right off the top of his head without even opening a book. Which shocks Quoth. Quoth, who knows 10 years later or whatever, just how much money was ever in his pocket. I think this maybe shows a little bit of similarity between the two. We know that for Quoth, this is something of a survival mechanism that he's picked up as a result of his time on the streets. His long-term financial insecurity has meant that he doesn't have the luxury of being able to offload that mental process into a book. And it's possible that maybe Kilvin comes from a similar background. Or maybe Kilvin just likes having a good puzzle. But it's definitely an interesting parallel between the two of them, and I think it's part of why Kilvin takes to Quoth. Kilvin makes sure that Quoth has come by his money honestly, and suggests that maybe because Quoth is so enamored with his music and earning money from his music, 
that it means that Quoth does not want to be in the artificery any longer. And Quoth is kind of horrified about this assumption. He wants to work in the artificery. He wants to learn more. He already knows everything he could possibly ever know about his music, right? So <laughs> the fishery provides a place for him to learn different skills. Yeah, the fishery is also a reliable source of income. Whereas the music is not. Music is feast or famine. And I kind of think that Kilvin paints music and the fishery as something of a false dichotomy. Because it really isn't an either-or. Both can pursue both, but he just needs to find the right balance. Kilvin even says, Music is a fine thing, but metal lasts. To which... Quoth thinks metal rusts, music lasts forever. Time will eventually prove one of us right. To wrap up this section, we get Quoth finally feeling secure enough where he can live in a relatively luxurious setting where he has a bedroom and a drawing room and a sitting room all to himself. And he finally just lets go of that tightness, that having to pinch every penny. He eats well. He drinks well. And the only reason that this all seems a little bit like a false sense of security is because we know what's going to happen. We're only a little past the halfway mark in the book, and... <laughs> If for the rest of the book he's completely comfortable and never has to worry again, that doesn't make a whole lot of narrative sense. Accurate. <laughs> I'm talking about the fact, though, that we also have knowledge, because we have read the book, of what is going to happen. I mean, there's a difference between assuming and knowing, and we know. I think this section actually does a pretty good job of setting you up with Quoth, to believe that the rug is not going to necessarily be pulled directly out from under him. However, if you pay attention to Ambrose, you might get the inkling that he will be a little bit responsible for um, ruining and shredding any of that sense of security. That final line, though, where Quoth lays down on his great big feather bed you can really feel just the sense of relief as there's like a weight taken off of him. Yeah. He's no longer insecure in terms of his finances, to his knowledge. He's no longer insecure in terms of his food source. That can be a huge weight off. And that sense of collapsing into the feather bed has a weightlessness to it. It's amazing how being money insecure, being home insecure, being food insecure, can just make everything feel like your skin is on fire. Let's put this as an analogy that a lot of people can understand. I would normally possibly choose the article of clothing that is a bra rather than a belt, but we're going to go with a belt. It's like taking your belt and your pants off after a long day of work and just letting it go and not having to care. But you've been in that belt for years. Yeah, I think it's not wrong to enjoy those moments of weightlessness 
I think that's something that you need, right? You need sometimes where you have that sense that things are working. That's what lets you build plans. But at the same time, it's not true invincibility. It's not a life without consequences for your actions. And Kvothe is going to run into that pretty quick here because he's still only 15. I'll also say it explains why maybe when you have necessities and then you have wants and you get maybe a tax return or unexpected money. And while you need new underwear, you want an Xbox and you get the Xbox. (laughs) Cause you can make do with your holy underwear. (laughs) Maybe speaking from personal experience. It me. (laughs) Also it me. (laughs) And honestly, like, if you know people that have made those kinds of decisions, do not judge them. You can't go through your life just going for the necessities. You have to give yourself something to look forward to. Something that can take some of that just everything has to be about what my next meal is away you need to give yourself an escape if it's a book if it's a video game console if it's a new tv if it's something that makes you happy if it's something that can take this thing that you know that you can live with and make it bearable there's no harm in it it kind of reminds me of the film babette's feast i may have talked about it before it's a wonderful movie set in Norway during the French Revolution, and it's about this woman named Babette, who is a maid in one of the royal aristocratic families of France, who flees the revolution to Norway, where she ends up falling in with a very dour group of Lutherans who are unerringly pragmatic in everything. And while their hospitality is meager, because their means are meager, And that's what she needs at that moment. Their shelter is what's helping her and her daughter live. She notices that they are not necessarily living a very joyful life. So as thanks for their kindness, she decides that she's going to throw them a feast with all of the French techniques that she has learned over the years. So she spends every penny that she has left to get all the ingredients together and all of the tools and utensils that she's going to need. And she gets everybody in this very dour village together finally at the end for this feast. And it's magnificent. Just the camera work is lush and the meal, it just looks delicious. And Throughout it, what you see is also this transformative power that happens from this seemingly frivolous thing. As these families have sometimes allowed their petty grudges to freeze them out from one another, to erect walls between one another. And as they're all sitting down to this beautiful, frivolous, seemingly silly thing, it has this magical transformative power. As they're having this meal that they will only have once, there is no way that she is ever going to be able to make this feast again for them. There is no way that they are going to be able to make this feast themselves. 
ever again. This is a one-time only thing. But it's this act of pure kindness and compassion because it is fundamentally about making an experience for everyone that is purely joyful. This is more than just subsistence. It has a real power that is able to thaw out those freezes. It's what lets them re-knit and rebuild as a community. I'd say that those little seemingly frivolous things can have immense power to make our lives better and richer. I agree. But I also think that if all you ever do is work towards that pragmatic, you can't give yourself those little moments of joy. And to judge people for choosing the joy... Uh... 100% with you. So now that we have finished with the chapter, it is time for us to get into our Fernimos of the week. I believe it's your turn. I believe you are correct. And because this has been a densely packed chapter, you've got your fill of choices here. So who'd you pick? I chose Kilvin. Despite the fact that I vehemently disagree with his statement of music is a fine thing, but metal lasts, I think that the rest of this little section with Kilvin has a lot of gems. Kilvin clearly wants Kvothe to work with him. He values Kvothe's intelligence. He values the fact that Kvothe doesn't do things by rote. He values that Kvothe thinks about a solution to a problem that might be wildly different than the standard way you'd go about it. But he doesn't want Kvothe to feel guilty. He doesn't want Kvothe to feel like he owes Kilvin anything. Kvothe says, I would like to resolve my debt to you. Kilvin knows that Kvothe owes him nothing. He does owe the shop, which is different. He wants to make sure that Kvothe earned his money honorably, which shows that he cares about Kvothe's well-being. I think it's more about his concern for Kvothe than his concern for really the methods that Kvothe goes through. He also understands that if Kvothe would prefer to spend his time with his music, that that's Kvothe following his passions. And he's not going to stand in the way of it, even as he would like Kvothe to stay with him. I also really love Kilvin, as you know. I think that, like you pointed out, his concern over did you come by this honorably or honestly... I think this is him taking an interest in Kvothe's moral development, not just his intellectual development. He wants Kvothe to be the kind of person who thinks seriously about his actions and his consequences and is thinking about his place in society. I think he's a good teacher. I agree. I also think it's wonderful that he lets Kvothe make his own choices without laying on the judgment or the guilt. And when Kvothe makes mistakes, as we'll see him do, Kilvin is also pretty graceful in how he discusses them. He makes no bones about calling out a mistake, but he also explains why he believes it to be a mistake and what he's actually hoping that Kvothe learns from it. 
Now it's time for us to take to heart the lessons of one of the other masters, namely Master Elodin, who is always encouraging us to learn something new about our own world. So, it's my turn here. I plan to interest you, and I don't plan to eat cherries. We shall see. Today we're going to take a jaunt through human history and examine some stuff from archaeology. Right now, archery has been an iconic aspect of human heroism, pretty much as far back as you can look. From antiquity, we see examples like Sagittarius, and then we have medieval heroes like Robin Hood, and then contemporary archers like Green Arrow, Hawkeye, and Katniss Everdeen. And throughout all of them, the basic form has been pretty much unchanged. You know, there may be different materials made for the bow and arrow, but the fundamental shape is the same and the techniques mostly the same. However, it's really fascinating when you look at just how ancient the bow and arrow truly is. How old do you think it is? I could not begin to guess. So, in Africa, archaeologists have found evidence of archery dating as far back as 64,000 years ago. And then we've also recently found examples in Sri Lanka, so a completely different population of humans, that are dated between 34,000 and 48,000 years ago. That is some seriously ancient history there. And some seriously ancient understanding of physics. Right. <laughs> and... These projectile weapons have been crucial in developing hunting methods throughout time, and they've been able to see shifts between when they were hunting small game, such as rabbits and things like that, to larger game like pigs and... Wild boars? Wild boars, yes. <laughs> it's a very interesting shift because it's also changed the way that humans have eaten and the types of game that we've been able to track down. Right now, there's not a clear consensus whether the Sri Lankan examples were developed locally or brought in from Africa, but it's just really fascinating how independently the bow and arrow has proliferated throughout human civilizations. So, is that interesting to you? Yeah. No cherries for me. Not this time. And yeah, next time you go watch an Avengers movie or go read a, a Hunger Games book or play Skyrim or any of that, remember the bow and arrow that you're looking at there is pretty much unchanged from our ancestors at the dawn of prehistory. I would say that the bow and arrow, specifically in part of the Hunger Games and very much so in the Avengers, is different. The bow is different. We're talking about a compound bow. I'd say that the technology surrounding more modern bows is definitely different than the ones found in Sri Lanka or in Africa. However, a regular, what everyone thinks of as bow and arrow when they just hear Robin Hood I think it's accurate to say that other than materials used, unchanged. Yeah, it's just really fascinating to me. But I already said you don't get any cherries. Yay! All right, and so now with that, it's time for us to do our seven words. I believe you have the words from the book this time? I do. My words this week are 
Laziness is one of my best characteristics. Now, what made you pick that one? Are you insinuating that maybe you're lazy? I say nothing of the... I plead the fifth. (laughs) I'm just curious what made you pick that one. Fair enough. There weren't a whole lot that really were inspiring to me, but I think in this case, that's actually kind of wise coming from both. First of all, that boy is not lazy. If we're going to be clear, we're going to give him some benefits and we're going to not just shirt on quoth all the time. He is not lazy. That's true. He puts a lot of work into getting what he wants done. Absolutely. And sometimes it's not the most efficient work either. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not. I think, though, in a lot of ways, this is a very diplomatic thing that he has said. Because he would like to not ruin a friendship over something that could be very, very offensive. But he's also not going to let Will off the hook for saying something truly offensive. I agree. I think that's a good reading of that. I think that in calling out the fact that he is being, quote, nazy and, quote, not translating (laughs) the offensive description of a Dima Drip, that he is making himself clear without escalating. Yeah, it does do a little bit to help keep things from getting too heated. It's firm, but still also being a little self-deprecating at the same time. And now it is time for you to talk about your seven words. So my seven words are the following. These are some things that have been rattling around in my brain for a while now. Your productivity does not determine your value. Very accurate. I think this is something that a lot of people have needed for a while now to internalize because living in a capitalist society, it is way too easy to think of your worth to society as being measured by your ability to generate wealth, by your ability to accomplish tasks. And it makes it all too easy to dehumanize yourself and others. And it alienates you from your ability to actually form meaningful relationships with other people. Because you're thinking that if you're doing something that is purely to bring joy, and it's not necessarily something of monetary value, that you're somehow less. And that's absolutely false. I also think I know part of why you chose this this week. Hmm. We did not record last week. We kind of ate it into my buffer a little bit, but on top of that, it threw my whole schedule off because I wasn't, quote, productive. Part of it isn't because of the productivity loss, because I can definitely absorb this is still going to come a week after the thing we recorded two weeks ago. It's not like my schedule being thrown off made me go into a tailspin because I wasn't productive. It made me go into a tailspin because my routines were off. But part of that routine is being productive. And then when I couldn't really function due to that lack of routine, it made it worse that I wasn't doing anything else. 
Yeah, and I completely understand that feeling. I know that when I've gone through periods of joblessness, anything that didn't feel like I was working to get a new job felt like I was somehow leeching or mooching, and I hated the feeling of it. And I was not giving myself the grace that I should have because I was allowing my productivity to define my value, and that was never the case, and that's never the case for anyone. We all have intrinsic value as nothing less than children of the universe. And we're all the product of billions and billions of years of immensely complex processes. And we all have complex in our lives, and we have great things that we can do for one another and ourselves. And I think that in allowing this notion of our productivity to be our measurement, we lose sight of the true intrinsic worth of one another. But yeah, those are my seven words. I like them. Good, because I want you to internalize them as well. I do my best. I do too. <laughs> At the end of the day, that's all we can do. And I know some days it's gonna work, and some days it's not. But each day we gotta try. And with that... Thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And many thanks to our audience for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapter 61 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of escalation. And thanks to our friends at Entirely the Right Sort of Podcast for the lens of choice, as well as our friends Suda41, Phantology Books, Radio Chickens, Cyan Cicada, Fate of Eisen, and Stuck on Arrakis for helping us choose. Check us out on Twitter. Every once in a while, I will post something that is a little more fan interaction heavy and ask if you yourself might have some suggestions on what lens we look through a particular section on. Jackus Jackus is one of my favorite parts of this book, so I wanted a little bit of suggestion from our audience on a good way to look at it. And I have to say that one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast has been being able to have these kinds of conversations with you, our listeners. Phoenix and I know what one another think about these things, so we're always curious to see what people who live outside of our home think. <laughs> we like interaction with people most of the time. <laughs> we would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating the world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, like the one we are about to record after this, and other exciting items. Note on that one that we are about to record, it's been available since the summer solstice on our Patreon page. I'm just really bad at planning the date that these come out along with the date of things that we do. <laughs> but it should still be available for anyone who signs up for that tier now. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding!
This may not be my best verse. I also deeply apologize for rhyming Aeolian and instrument. Sure. <laughs> All right, you ready? If you are. <laughs>